episode 11 of California Dreaming, I told you the sad story of the troubled life and tragic death of Dana Plato, one of the three main child stars of the late 70s and early 80s hit television sitcom Different Strokes. As a bonus, I wanted to tell you guys a little bit more about Dana's co-stars, Gary Coleman and Todd Bridges, both of whom also experienced difficulties and challenges as they themselves transitioned from children to teenagers and into adults, and all the things that happened in their lives post-different strokes. Gary Wayne Coleman was born February 8, 1968, in Zion, Illinois. Gary was adopted at the age of one day old by parents W.G. Coleman, a pharmaceutical representative, and Edmonina Sue Coleman, a nurse practitioner. When he was born, Gary was diagnosed with several health issues, including a congenital kidney defect known as nephritis, a condition which would require many surgeries and lifelong dialysis. Gary had his first kidney transplant at the age of five, and then a second one at the age of 17. Because of the two failed kidney transplants, Gary would have to depend on dialysis for the duration of his life. Also, as a result of the medical conditions he struggled with, and the fact that he had to take such strong medications to treat his conditions, Gary's height became stunted, topping off at a diminutive 4 foot 8 inches tall. His condition also caused his face to keep quite an adorable, childlike appearance well into his teenage and young adult years. Gary started modeling at the age of five. He appeared in several commercials, including ones for McDonald's, Hallmark, and Harris Bank. In 1974, he appeared on a TV show for the very first time on an episode of Medical Center. Shortly after that, and with some good luck, Gary was spotted by some talent scouts working under Norman Lear, a television writer and producer who produced such 1970s sitcoms as All in the Family, Sanford and Son, One Day at a Time, The Jeffersons, Good Times, and Maud. Gary had the opportunity to appear in some featured comedic roles on The Jeffersons and Good Times. NBC quickly took notice of Coleman's special skills as an actor and a comedian, and he was quickly vetted for the role for which he would become famous for, the role of Arnold Jackson on the hit sitcom Different Strokes at the young age of 10. Gary quickly rose to fame as the wise-cracking youngest brother on the show about a wealthy widower who took in the two inner-city children of his recently deceased housekeeper. Producer Norman Lear would say of Gary, there was such a touch of magic and a different stroke in Gary Coleman. He was the inspiration behind the show's title. Gary's natural charm, and with the line he's best known for, what you talk about Willis, frequently directed at his older brother played by Todd Bridges, which became a catchphrase, helped make the show an immediate breakout hit with audiences. It was a mainstay with NBC until 1985, and then on ABC for one year afterward. When NBC casted Gary in the role of Arnold Jackson, at the time, 
The network was wallowing in last place amongst the three major broadcasting networks and had only two television shows in the Nielsen's top 20. Different Strokes was a smash hit for the network and finished in the top 30 every week in its first three years. And Gary Coleman was a household name. Veteran actors marveled at his comedic timing. He appeared several times on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. He also appeared on several television specials and had a hit TV movie called The Kid from Left Field. Gary was the main primetime face of NBC through the early to mid-80s. In a 1979 interview with People magazine, television dad and co-star Conrad Bain, who played Philip Drummond on Different Strokes, said, Gary is exceptional, and not only by the standard set for children. He's bright, sweet, and affectionate. He seems incapable of a wrong reading, and I've never seen that in any actor. Coleman was ready for new challenges when Different Strokes was canceled in 1986, but things did not bode well for the young actor. After the show went off the air, Gary, 18 years old at the time, struggled to find a place in show business. He occasionally landed some guest spots on game shows and other sitcoms, but he was unable to find regular work. Unfortunately, he also found himself ridiculed and made fun of because of his short stature. He never grew any taller than four foot eight. He was made fun of and laughed at and made the punchline of jokes. His co-stars Dana Plato, who I've already talked about in episode 11, and Todd Bridges, who I will discuss next, also struggled in life after different strokes. Gary found himself with very little money left after peaking at more than $70,000 an episode on different strokes. When he turned 18 and all of his finances were going to be turned over to his control, he discovered that his fortune, which should have been put in a trust fund, easily totaling into the millions of dollars, was nearly gone. Gary ended up having to sue his own parents over the mismanagement of his finances. For four long years, Gary fought his parents through the court system before he was finally awarded $1.3 million from them, as well as from a former financial advisor. If that weren't enough, Gary's parents decided to sue him right back for defamation and breach of contract. I'm not sure how or where the breach of contract claims can be substantiated because he was a child and children really can't be bound by contracts. His parents' lawsuit was eventually tossed out by the courts. His parents then came back and tried to appoint a conservator over Coleman's financial and health needs. What they were trying to do was circumvent Gary altogether and have a third party be in charge of him for them which is a pretty shady move. A conservator is usually reserved for individuals who are incapable of understanding legal procedures, are unable to assist with legal issues, attorneys or court proceedings due to mental illness or impairment, or they're so sick or even in a coma, they are unable to physically assist with their legal matters. Gary did have some health problems, mainly the kidney issues, but that was all being treated with medications and dialysis. 
Mentally and physically, he was perfectly able to handle his own affairs. They were not able to order a conservatorship over Gary, and Gary ended up suing his parents again for malicious prosecution for the four years they fought him in court and continued to fight with him after he had won his settlement. Not surprisingly, Gary ended up being estranged from his parents. Despite winning the lawsuit, Gary still struggled financially, with most of any money he received from the lawsuit having gone into attorney's fees and a few bad investments, according to Gary. By the mid-90s, Gary found himself working as a security guard on a movie set. He was ridiculed for this as well. He told Larry King in a 1999 interview that he wanted to work and that he liked working. And all this about being a security guard, he wasn't going to allow the entertainment industry to stop him from earning a living. Later on that year, Gary had to file for bankruptcy. He was also being sued by an autograph seeker who Gary apparently struck or punched. And that was pretty much how it was for Gary for the better part of the 2000s. The headlines he were making were generally bad news. Gary Coleman cited for disorderly conduct in 2007. Gary Coleman in alleged bowling alley scuffle in 2008. Gary Coleman charged with reckless driving again in 2008. Gary Coleman hospitalized for another seizure in 2010. Gary did what he could to stay active. He still had a very loyal fan base. He made guest appearances in movies, television, music videos, video games, and promotional spots. In 2003, during California's recall election of Gray Davis, Gary Coleman threw his hat into the race for governor. His candidacy as an independent was put together by an Oakland area newspaper publication the East Bay Express, who paid the $3,500 filing fee and collected the necessary petition signatures and promoted his candidacy in protest of the vote aimed at recalling Governor Davis. Well, Arnold Jackson did not win the election. The other Arnold did. By like a lot. Gary came in eighth place, though. I looked it up, and there were about a total of 154 people who had a vote casted for them in that recall election, many of them with just one vote, but 154 nonetheless. Gary did get married in 2007 to 22-year-old Shannon Price, but by all accounts, it was quite a rocky one. They had filed for divorce about a year later, but from what I could see, it was never really finalized. On May 26, 2010, Gary was admitted to Utah Valley Regional Medical Center in Provo, Utah, in critical condition. He had fallen down the stairs in his home, hitting his head, possibly after having another seizure, but that could not be confirmed. The fall and head injury caused an epidural hematoma, a traumatic brain injury in which a buildup of blood occurs between the dura matter, or the tough outer membrane of the central nervous system, and the skull. The spinal cord is also covered by a layer of dura matter, so an epidural bleeding event can also occur in the spinal column.
Because this type of injury is caused by a serious trauma to the head, the condition is potentially deadly because the buildup of blood may increase pressure in the intracranial space, causing a compression against the delicate brain tissue, therefore causing brain shifting. This condition is present in approximately 1-3% to of head injuries and approximately 15-20% to of epidural hematomas are fatal. According to a hospital spokesperson, Gary was conscious and lucid the morning after he was admitted into the hospital, but his condition suddenly worsened throughout the morning. By mid-afternoon, the day after he was hospitalized, he became unconscious and was placed on life support. Gary died the next day, around noon, on May 28, 2010. He was 42 years old. There were a lot of questions swirling around Gary's wife, Shannon Price, who was ultimately the one who approved of pulling the plug on life support. There were questions if she was legally authorized to do so and to do it so quickly. The controversy was made worse when a picture published on the front page of the Globe tabloid showed Price posing next to Gary in his coma with all the tubes coming out of him under a headline that read, It was murder. The hospital later issued a statement confirming that Coleman did in fact complete an advanced health care directive granting Price permission to make medical decisions on his behalf. On October 5, 2010, the police investigation was closed after the medical examiner ruled Gary's death an accident. There's so much more that could be said about Gary's wife, his parents, and all their nonsense and fighting after his death, but I honestly don't even think it's worth the time getting into here. This is about Gary and his story. And for all intents and purposes, it's over now. Todd Anthony Bridges was born May 27, 1965 in San Francisco, California, but he grew up in Hollywood. His parents, James and Betty, were both actors, and so were his older siblings, Jimmy and Verda. Todd's parents having found it difficult to find any significant amount of success as actors themselves, found more consistent work as agents and acting coaches, which of course included their own children. By the time Todd was four years old, they already begun managing his career and got him started in the business with his first job doing some modeling for a magazine ad. When he was nine years old, he made his acting debut in a Jell-O commercial with his whole family. This was the gig that resulted in a lot more work for Todd, including a 1975 appearance on the television show Barney Miller and a role in the made-for-TV movie Catherine, also in 1975. In 1977, Todd appeared in the critically acclaimed miniseries Roots, as well as extremely popular TV shows like Little House on the Prairie, The Love Boat, and The Waltons. As a result of his earlier appearance on Barney Miller, Todd was able to secure a regular role on the Barney Miller spinoff, Fish, where 10-year-old Todd played a streetwise jokester named Loomis. In 1980, 
Despite the fact that Fish was canceled after only one season, Todd's performance caught the attention of Norman Lear. Like Gary and Dana, his big break came after he was cast in the starring role of Willis Jackson on Different Strokes, a role which he played for the entire run of the show, Eight Seasons. And also like Gary and Dana, this role would change Todd's life forever. Todd became an instant star with NBC's highest rated sitcom, all the while keeping straight A's at Hollywood Academy High School in between shooting the TV show. Earning more than $15,000 per episode at the show's peak and $30,000 by the time the show ended, not to mention becoming a teen heartthrob. By the time he was 18 years old, he owned a home in Los Angeles, he had his pick of the ladies, and the world was in the palm of his hands with a very, very promising career in Hollywood. But like I talked about in episode 11 about Dana, Todd also faced quite a number of personal challenges off the set. His father, who was his agent, and his mother, who was his manager, divorced in 1982. Although the couple reportedly remained friends, their divorce seemed to hit Todd particularly hard. The following year, according to Todd, he was apparently being harassed and terrorized by a white supremacist group in the neighborhood in which he was living at the time, Canoga Park. According to Todd, there was an incident in which he and or his home was being fired upon from a distance away, kind of like a sniper, by those who had been harassing him. He says his car was also stolen and set on fire, so in order to protect himself, as he was afraid of the attacks that he was facing in his neighborhood, he said he started carrying a gun. Later that same month, he was pulled over by police for a traffic violation and he was subsequently charged with carrying a loaded and concealed weapon. He ended up paying a fine for the offense, but this would not be the end of Todd's run-in with police. In 1986, shortly after the final season of Different Strokes came to an end, Todd was accused of bombing the car of someone he had some sort of business dispute with. I read a couple of more articles about this, but apparently it wasn't actually a bombing, but a bomb threat, and that was the charge Todd pleaded no contest to. He was given three years of probation, 300 hours of community service, and a $2,500 fine. As you can imagine, these legal troubles did not make finding work in Hollywood very easy. And at the time, there was also a lack of substantial roles for black actors, and that further added to the challenges for his career. And if you listen to the episode about Dana Plato, then you know Todd was a party companion of hers. So with the added complications of a waning career, being depressed and despondent over it all, he turned to drugs and crime. In 1989, without work, income, or any money, 
Todd had had his car in a repair shop to have some work done, and unable to pay the $500 repair bill, he threatened the mechanic with a gun and took his car from the shop without paying the bill. Unlike Dana's robbery incident, where she was easily recognized by the cashier that she robbed, witnesses at the scene where Todd's incident occurred could not accurately identify the suspect and so those charges were dropped. A couple of weeks later though, Todd was arrested again for crack cocaine possession, but those charges were also later dropped because of insufficient evidence. Just nine days after the crack cocaine arrest, Todd found himself in some very serious trouble. In February of 1989, Todd was accused of the attempted murder of a drug dealer named Kenneth Clay. According to the charges brought against him, Todd and Clay got into an argument over a drug deal and the argument quickly escalated into a violent argument where Todd allegedly shot Clay eight times. Todd pleaded not guilty to the charges but remained in jail until he went to trial. And as a side note, while he was in there, he was rubbing elbows with the likes of Lyle and Eric Menendez. You know those guys, right? There was also a co-defendant, Harvey Duckett, who was accused of slashing the victim's face with a knife. He also pleaded not guilty to the attempted murder charges. If convicted, the two were facing mandatory life sentences with the possibility of parole. Todd and his co-defendant were arrested after Clay was discovered near death in his Los Angeles home where he sold crack cocaine. Clay said that he found Todd and Harvey in his house trying to rob the place and when he confronted them, he was shot and slashed with a knife. During the trial, Todd admitted that he was abusing crack cocaine and that his drug use prevented him from knowing for sure if he had shot anyone or not. With the help of his attorney, Johnny Cochran, Todd was acquitted after two separate trials. And if the name Johnny Cochran sounds familiar, it should. He is the very same Johnny Cochran that headed OJ Simpson's dream team of attorneys who were able to help him be acquitted of his double murder charge in the killing of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown, and her friend Ron Goldman. Despite Todd's acquittal, his career as an actor was effectively destroyed. If not for the bad publicity resulting from his legal issues, but also his addiction to crack cocaine. And Todd was not done being on the wrong side of the law. In 1993, he found himself in trouble yet again when he got into an argument with a tenant in his home, David Kitchen. Kitchen allegedly refused to pay rent and attacked Todd with a sword. Todd fought back by stabbing Kitchen in the chest with a knife. Investigators determined that Todd acted in self-defense and the charges against him were dropped. Sadly, later on that same year, Todd was arrested again for possession of methamphetamines and illegal firearms. After this incident, Todd entered a court-ordered drug treatment program. 
This program seemed to help Todd curb his substance abuse issues, but it didn't seem to help him work past his propensity for violence. In 1997, Todd again faced charges of assault when he rammed the car of one of his friends over and over with his own car after the two had an argument. He was sentenced to community service again and a fine again. In 1998, Todd was finally able to effect change in his life, and things began to turn around for him. He turned to Christianity for help and guidance with the problems he'd been facing for the past several years of his life. He also founded the Todd Bridges Youth Foundation, a nonprofit youth center in Los Angeles that provides sports, computer training, and acting classes for inner city children. He also met the woman he would eventually marry, Dory Smith. The couple tied the knot on May 25, 1998, and welcomed a son, Spencer, two months later. A few years later, in April of 2001, Todd made headlines again for an odd but surprisingly feel-good reason. He helped save a paraplegic woman from drowning when her motorized wheelchair accidentally rolled into Lake Balboa in Encino, California. Stella Klein, 50 years old at the time, who regularly fished at Lake Balboa Park, said that her electric wheelchair lurched into the 37-acre lake at around 1 p.m. that afternoon when her fishing line caught on the chair's joystick. Even though the water is only about 18 to 30 inches deep, she was buckled into the heavy chair, which tilted on its side and her head became submerged underwater. Todd was fishing with his family a few feet away. Stella said that Todd immediately jumped in and pulled her and her chair out of the water with help from Todd's brother, James. Speaking of Todd, Stella stated, I was thanking God that he was there. And you know, everybody's been saying nothing but bad stuff about Todd Bridges on the news and in the papers, but he has a heart of gold. Lifeguards arrived at the scene shortly after Todd and James helped Stella out of the water, but quickly acknowledged that she certainly is lucky that they were nearby and jumped in to help. Todd also credited God with him being there at the right place at the right time when this happened to Stella because he said there was nobody else around. He described the way he saw the wheelchair turn sideways and her body was upside down and her head under the water. They quickly surmised that there was no way she was going to be able to right herself. Those chairs, I can only imagine, are so heavy. Stella later on said that she did not recognize Todd at first but was later told by the paramedics as they were loading her into the ambulance that it was Todd Bridges that saved her life. She said Todd Bridges, the guy who played Willis on different strokes? She had been a huge fan of the show. I don't know about you guys, but I did not know of this hero story of Todd's until I researched it for this mini episode. I love Todd on different strokes. And I've enjoyed watching him in recent years on True TV's The Smoking Gun series, Dumbest Criminals, and stuff like that. But man, this story really gave me all the feels for Todd. Todd also saw an upswing in his acting career as we entered into the new millennium. 
He made appearances on several reality TV shows, including Celebrity Boxing in 2002 and Fear Factor in 2006. He had a recurring role on Chris Rock's sitcom Everybody Hates Chris, which was on the air from 2005 to 2009. And like I had just said, he was a regular contributor on The Smoking Guns, World's Dumbest Criminals, one of my favorite TV shows to watch on True TV at the time. He also appeared on Oprah in 2010 to promote a book he wrote called Killing Willis, where he discusses his acting career, drug addiction, and run-ins with the law. As of today, it seems all is well with Mr. Todd Bridges. I looked around for him on social media and found him on Twitter, so I started following him there. He doesn't seem to be an avid Twitter user, but he is moderately active. And he gets a great deal of positive tweets from his followers. As far as I can scroll, nothing but love and positivity for the man. And that's just a real good place to leave off from all the sadness that surrounded these kids of different strokes. In the past couple weeks, I've been reminiscing and thinking about the show and how much I enjoyed it when I was a kid. I think it used to come on TV land occasionally and it might still come on some cable channels, but I'm not finding a great deal of time to watch TV as much as I used to. I looked on YouTube and found the pilot episode and asked my daughter if she wanted to watch it with me to see if she liked it, and she did, which didn't surprise me because she likes a lot of older shows. So she found a YouTube channel and we started binging season one, but the channel got shut down before we got through it. We found it streaming on Amazon Prime, I think, but we decided we would try and get the complete set for ourselves on DVD, maybe by this Christmas, so we can resume our binge then. Watching the show brought back so many memories of the 80s, and watching it with my own daughter now is even better, except she keeps complaining about Kimberly's clothes and her hairdos. Oh, the 80s were a challenging time for fashion. But watching them all again, knowing now the directions their lives went, it's kind of sad and kind of heartbreaking that just about everybody smiling and having fun and bringing us so much laughter is gone now. All I have to say is thank goodness for Todd Bridges and... Here's to a good, long, happy, healthy life to him and his family. Thank you all so much for joining me for this very special bonus episode of California Dreaming. You can now find the show on the Orbital Jigsaw Network of Podcasts, along with an amazing group of shows that you might want to check out if you have the chance, like The Concession Stand, a show where hosts Nick and Andy geek out over all things entertainment, Busted Wide Open, where host Nick and Sir Ian Dangerous take you on a weekly journey through the hottest news in sports entertainment. Super Nerds UK, where host Ben, Ian, Tim, and Simon take an irreverent look at pop culture. Historium, a podcast devoted to the telling of strange, obscure, or otherwise interesting stories from history. Is This Adulting? 
a podcast dedicated to breaking down the stigma of mental illness through the lens of comedy. The Dirty Bits, where you can join host Tawny Plattis for her casual retellings of the sexy, scandalous, and salacious stories your history teacher likely left out. And two of the latest shows to join our growing family, Insight, where host Allie and Charlie take a new look at true crime, mysteries, and forgotten history. And last, but certainly not least, 4-1-Owned, where hosts GT, Dak, Kevin, Jack, and Matt talk about all things gaming, for the most part. If any of these shows sound like something you'd like to listen to, you can find us all at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And as for California Dreaming, you can follow me on Facebook on the discussion page. I'm also on Twitter at California Pod and on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. Please feel free to join, follow, share, and discuss all things true crime. And we don't just talk about true crime. We talk about other podcasts that we enjoy listening to. We share about our pets. As long as we're nice and sweet and kind and civil to one another, then pretty much anything goes. Thank you again so much for joining me for this special bonus episode of California Dreaming. And until next time, sweet dreams.